Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by White Famous. White Famous is a new Showtime original comedy series about trying to make it in Hollywood, starring SNL vet Jay Farrow as Floyd Mooney, a comedian whose career is about to blow up, but he's not sure he's ready for all that. Can he make it without losing his soul? White Famous is executively produced by Academy Award winner Jamie Foxx and the creator of Californication Tom Kapanos. The show is based on Jamie Foxx's real-life experiences and also stars Michael Rappaport, Jacob Ming-Trent, and more. You can watch the series premiere right now for free on YouTube or download the Showtime app now to start your free trial. Catch new episodes of White Famous Sundays at 10 p.m. only on Showtime. No, no, no. He's a single-minded one at a time, does his own thing, director, don't even, don't even send us the script. And all of a sudden, I was looking at stuff that was out in the world. I'm Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture. W.C. Fields once said, never work with children or animals. Well, Todd Haynes broke that rule. There are no animals in Haynes' new movie, Wonderstruck, but it stars our children. Two, in fact, in two different timelines. One, a deaf girl who has run away from her home in New Jersey in the 1920s in search of her mother. And the other, a deaf boy from Minnesota on a quest to find his father in the 1970s. Both come to New York City in search of those lost parents. What they find and how their stories come together is something only Haynes could pull off. His other movies, including Safe, Far From Heaven, my personal favorite, the Bob Dylan portrait, I'm Not There, and 2015's Carol, are period pieces that capture a time in history, but also make us see the past in a new way. They're lush, grand, emotional stories. Wonderstruck is no different. Todd came by the Ringer offices to talk about his new film, digging into the past to see the future, and the growing cult of Carol. Here's Todd Haynes. Boy, I'm really lucky to be joined by Todd Haynes today. Todd, thank you for coming thank in. Thank you, Sean. So, Todd, Wonderstruck is your new film. It's a beautiful film. I couldn't help but notice that it is a double period piece. You love a period piece. Um, <laughs> I love me a period piece. You do. I, I, and I want to ask you about going back and what going back does for you and why you keep seeking out these stories that take us 10, 20, 50, 70 years in the past. You know, it. it, it I wish I had an answer that would address it as a sort of overall compulsion. I think it it's sort of case by case in, in my films. But there's no doubt that every time I go back into a different time period, I, I learn so much. I feel like I get to time travel into another time and place. I'm called upon to study the music and the culture and the habits and the history and the events of that time. And here period films that are kind of conscious about what they're doing make you kind of think about where we are today in relationship to that to those times like it's not it's not for no reason that we're looking back and putting a frame around it at the time that we are so that that's always been an interest in the films I've made so the movie is based on Brian Selznick's book yeah and it takes place in the 20s and the 70s exactly how'd the book come to you why did you decide to make this a film the what came to me first was his adaptation from his book, mm-hmm. this being the first one that he himself wrote based on one of his um, young adult novels. The invention of Hugo Cabret is probably the first best-known thing he did, which was adapted uh, for the Scorsese film. But this time, I think it was uh, – this. the story goes that Sandy Powell, my costume designer – The great Sandy Powell, The yeah. great Sandy Powell – read the book to Wonderstruck and said, I think this could be something Todd Haynes could do or something. And at first, Brian was like, what? 
Todd for a kid's movie. It wasn't the obvious person that he thought of, but he knew my work. And I think that started to sink in as he started to make right, do the adaptation. So when he finished, he, he offered it to me. And so I read this really beautiful, really thoughtful treatment of his novel. So people know your films as social dramas at the forefront of queer cinema, a lot of historical work. I think it's reasonable that Brian would be surprised that a kid's movie would appeal to you. So what, what, why did you lock into this? And what did you think about making a movie primarily with kids in the lead? I mean, I think in terms of his interest in history and his interest in film history in particular, and that part of it, probably he could see a, a crossover to my work. But I never have made a film that's really exclusively about kids. I made a short film called Dottie Gets Spanked in 1993 in between my first two feature films. But it is from a kid's point of view, but mm-hmm. it's not really a film. It's like a teenager, right? For No, he's like a seven-year-old kid. Oh, seven-year-old, he's a little okay. guy. But it's not really meant for kids that age to, right. to, to watch it. And this film was, although being extremely strange and unique in its concept and artful and all of those things that were great um, incentives creatively for me. I just thought, I thought kids could really follow it. I thought kids could follow it because it's it's structured like a mystery story. Mm-hmm. And it's all about little pieces of information and clues and bits of evidence that they keep following in their journeys sort of of self-discovery. And, and I also just remember seeing movies as a kid myself and seeing movies that were, you know, maybe just a little beyond my my reach when I saw them. What's an example of that? Probably the first movie that really that I was a little young for was I was seven when Romeo and Juliet came out, the Franco Zeffirelli film. But it's a it's a gorgeous film. It's a it's an eternal story. It's it, the tragic tragic narrative and and the love story was really just you know made a huge impression it's, it's erotic it's it it also felt and i was very aware of this that it really connected to youth culture of the time mm-hmm. so it felt very modern while being set in the past did it feel forbidden somehow or you just couldn't quite access every theme that it was going for well it yeah it was shakespeare and it was so the language was so rich and mysterious to me uh the story was was something i could follow and that's the great thing about shakespeare is you really can follow the stories um you know despite or or because of the language but the language becomes sort of poetic um, guide that takes you right. through the, the narratives. But the narratives are extremely visceral and, and, and enduring. But, yeah, it was certainly a little beyond. It's not necessarily what you think of taking a seven-year-old kid to, but a lot of my friends were making this funny rite of passage from starting the year seeing Oliver. Everyone's birthday party was going to see Oliver. And then some kids sort of split off and started to get exposed to Romeo and Juliet, which was also a phenomenon mm-hmm. of that of that uh, time. That was very popular among teenagers at the time too, it, right? It, very much among teenagers, who yeah. were probably more what you thought of as the younger end of that audience. Mm-hmm. But it, it obsessed me. It com- like other films I'd seen when I was a kid, and I went on a sort of Shakespeare, you know, Phase or something at seven years old. Well, at seven, it, it continued for a few years <laughs> later. My first film was my 
version of Romeo and Juliet, where I sort of played all the parts. Were you talking about Superstar? No, no. This was when I was nine. It was Romeo and Juliet. Your first, with your first film? My first little Super 8 home movie really? where I, you know, dressed up in all the characters and even tried double exposure as a test one day at, and dressed up as Juliet alongside Romeo. It didn't really work, but... I got a friend to play Juliet. But I played, you know, I would be sword fighting dressed as Tybalt on one side of the frame. And then you'd cut to the other side of the frame. I'd be dressed as Mercutio <laughs> playing the other side. I thought, I thought a lot about the tricks of cinema while I was doing that. But no, it, it got into my bloodstream. And then, you know, when I was 12, which is the age of the kids in Wonderstruck, I saw The Miracle Worker, which is about the life of Helen, the early, early life of Helen Keller. And that made a – that was another film I got really, really into. And I think kids are interested in Helen Keller. I think kids are interested in the question of lose, and not having your sight, not having your hearing or, or one of your central senses and how you would fare and mm-hmm. what you would do. You know, kids are curious about situations that put them in challenging places and Situations and and, yeah, and it's th- visceral in the way that we don't you often use that word, right? You, but you can feel in, in your movie as well the loss of hearing yeah. is is profound. It really it touches the character and it touches you while you're watching. Exactly, it. and kids kids understand limited freedom and limited mobility and limited access to things. And I think also all great kids' stories and fairy tales are unafraid of dealing with dark themes. Both of these kids deal with loss, particularly a little boy who's just lost his mom and the little girl for whom no one really knows how to how to deal with her she, as a deaf kid, what to do with her. And they kind of stash her away, lock her up, which was not uncommon in the 1920s when, when your kid was deaf. So these kids are loners and they don't – they have to kind of leave their homes and venture somewhere to kind of figure some things out. When you were making it, were you hoping that this would be a movie that kids would watch? Yes, absolutely. How do you make that happen now? Meaning? How do you get a movie like this in front of children? Well, that's a good question. I mean, that's part of the marketing challenge of this film. But it's always been my conviction. I mean, I really stake to claim saying, come on, you guys, this is is true. This has basically been true for all my films. That they're not, they don't have an automatic audience. You have to kind of contextualize them. Uh, for different audiences. And in the older days in film, in the indie film, people would read critics and get a per, you know perspective and a framing of what the film was and it would give them a way in and set them up for an experience that may not be typical of other films. Now they They've listen seen. to podcasts. And now they listen to podcasts. <laughs> so it's, Sean, this is in your hands, Okay, man. I'm doing my best. So I'm, I'm handing so it off here. to you. But no, but I do think, you know, I do think in today's day and age, we miss the curator. We miss the person who does. We need, we find other ways of finding that person, the tastemaker, mm-hmm. you know, the, the YouTube star, the person who kind of says what's cool or their favorite top 10 things of the week or whatever it is. And because we're so overwhelmed by media and content in every corner that you kind of need a navigation uh, through it. So, yeah, I hope that is a way that, I mean, I think word of mouth is one thing that might help any movie, but this one as well. I went to like the Women's March the day after Trump was elected and I looked around and I'm like, well, all these families are together and they're, and the kids are making signs and they're feeling like we have to like get out of our house together and, 
and figure out what we're going to do next. And I'm like, okay, this is this is not this is a good example of a of an audience for Wonderstruck. It's parents who want to nourish their kids, show them cool things, and and maybe teach them a little about history. And I can't guarantee you that I have a strong seven year old listenership on this show, <laughs> but um, I, we'll do but our you're best. Working on the word. It. Yeah, we're working on it. We're trying to touch all audiences. But does working with Amazon on this film help that in any way? Is the fact that this movie eventually will be streaming in a significant way? help get it in, fr- in front of more people? Because obviously you're sort of a you know, bastion of independent film in the minds of a lot of people in the industry. So it, has this been different and will that be helpful for you? Well, I think all, you know, today all films will be streamed. All films will be on cable. That's been true for some time now. That's always been the sort of, sort of ancillary life of independent mm-hmm. filmmaking. It's often how you complete your financing packaging and is, is relying on that final audience and venue. So it's not really that different today. The, the one thing that Amazon is trying to make, you know, really state as a mandate to di- distinguish themselves possibly from other streaming companies is that they really are committed to the theatrical portion of their releases and really committed to making things that will be seen on the big screen. Of course, that's the way I want that people to, to see Wonderstruck. It's It's got this beautiful widescreen aspect ratio, the 2-4 aspect ratio, the sound design, because it's so much about this sound of the, the music and the yeah. sound design tells the story more, you know, as much of or as more than any other single component because it's not driven by dialogue. Both kids are deaf. And so you really hear that and feel that dynamic sound design in the theater. But I know it'll end up on cable. That's fine. That's another way people can see it in their home theaters. I think any way people find the things that mean something to them is okay, you know, and there's maybe no perfect way. Tell me about the sound of the movie. You, you know, you're well known for choosing songs. You've also got Carter Burwell's score in the film. Yeah. Plus, you're also trying to manage making it clear that these deaf characters, what they can hear and what they can't. And right. you're, there's, it's a, there's some trickiness with the dialogue. How do you do that? How does that go into a script? How do you know ahead of time how to manage something like that for the big screen? Well, it was just something I wanted to pay acute attention to from the beginning, well before we were shooting the film, begin conversation, so that we really just were like conscious of sound, even at the stages in in shooting the film when most likely we wouldn't be using recorded dialogue in any of the silent portion the black and white 1920s portions of the film which we didn't which which we did not end up using but we wanted to have it anyway just mm-hmm. in case who knows you know we could do we could distort it we could turn it into weird sound abstract soundscapes it could be material to use later so i just wanted to be mindful of sound in every conceivable way so yeah, that's pretty much what how we proceeded in in tackling it. And but it was really unique. This I've never experienced before with my editor Afonso Gonzalez. And and ultimately, Wonderstruck is a film about editing. It's the it's how the two stories interact, the rhythms of the two stories that the whole film rests on. Were you filming those two parts in tandem or did they was did one happen and then no, the other happened? No, they were so in tandem because we're shooting with kids. Mm-hmm. So kids expire uh, by union rules after about 8 or 9 hours on set a day. And the whole movie is features kids. There's very few scenes where the kids do not are not pictured, which meant 
we not only were shooting them in tandem, we literally had to shoot 1920s and 1970s every day of the shoot. Wow. So the film was already a puzzle piece that compounded things, as you can imagine, in just the sheer stru- you know, practicality of how mm-hmm. to pull a, produ- a production off with still limited means and limited yeah, time. location, set design, all, all that stuff. That, that, yeah. All that stuff. Is what they say about working with kids true? That they tell you everything you should be doing and teach <laughs> well, you how to do, do it. Well, they say don't do it. Teach you how to do it. No, it was great. It was amazing. I mean, it's it's. I think what the the, the adage that it's all about casting mm-hmm. is more true is is even more true with kids. How'd you find the two leads? They're very different stories. There's Ben, who's a professional actor who had starred in Pete's Dragon. And then there was the role of Rose in the silent film. And, and, and Rose is born deaf. She's deaf from the beginning of the film. Ben becomes deaf during the course of the film. So for Ben, we had to cast a hearing kid who could speak and still play that transition. With Rose, my goal was to try to find a deaf actor to play Rose. And that pretty much meant going into the world of non-professional actors, obviously, because there aren't a lot of deaf kid actors with regular employment. And that meant looking through the country and seeing where deaf communities live and reside. And it's not necessarily where there are deaf, where there are deaf schools. Millie was in an integrated hearing school outside Salt Lake City. We sent out notices. We asked kids to send in homemade tapes on their phones. And, and we got many, many, like 200 submissions from deaf kids all over the country. And and then we and one and one of them was Millicent Simmons, and she just kind of floored me and my casting director Laura Rosenthal from the beginning, and and uh, a sense of self possession was immediately evident in her, just her signing and talking about who she is. But you still don't know whether a kid can act and can carry a movie like this, and that was really the remarkable thing, is how innately she sort of understood this medium film. She has silent film movie star she charisma, really you know? She does. It's pretty amazing. And that's not no easy task. What about filling out the rest of the cast? You're, you're back with Julianne Moore. Yeah. Michelle Williams is there. Yeah. The great Tom Noonan is there. Yeah, um, yeah. How did you end up uh, pulling everybody else in? Well, we... We made the East Coast a first sort of prerequisite, of course. If we didn't find who we needed, we would branch out to the West Coast. But we were there in New York City. Mm-hmm. which just made a world of sense. And there's fantastic actors on the East Coast, of course. And for Julie, to work with Julie again is always an amazing um, privilege. And at this stage, it's sort of like, you know, family. And uh, Can you just make the call? I'm doing something. Would you like to be a oh, part yeah. of it? Oh, yeah. That, I can definitely do that. It's always a matter of her schedule, my schedule. And and what I always like to be able to do with Julianne is offer her something different, mm-hmm. something she hasn't done before, which gets harder when she's played so many roles and done so many kinds of films. Well, this was definitely that. So this movie came pretty quickly after Carol. I'm used to waiting for a few me, years. For, for, for me, yeah, for my career. How did that happen? I usually – there's a three- or four-year gap sometimes. I Well, it was you know pretty much due to the fact that these are both films I didn't write myself. Oh, interesting. They existed. They were out there, and, and that's sort of new for my was career. That a, was that a choice that you made after – was it Mildred, Mildred Pierce? You have a screenwriting. You have I wrote. Yeah. We adapted the novel, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd read. I, I, my friend John Raymond, who's a writer, a friend of mine in Portland, uh, 
I kept saying, you got to read the James M. Cain original novel of Mildred Pierce one of these days. It's really great. And it was, it was right around the recession recession year 2008 where I finally had a little, this little moment. I read it and I was like, wow, this is something else. And it's so different from the Michael Curtiz film version yes. with Joan Crawford. And it spans the entire era of the Depression, the like a nine-year span of time, and told a bigger story about the this middle-class family and the mother-daughter conflict. Um, and so it just felt relevant in so many ways. So, yeah, we adapted that novel and played very close attention to the novel, and all of a sudden we're able to do so by doing it in episodic dramatic television as a miniseries. Um, but did that did that, after that experience, did you make a decision to not necessarily write things because of how long it had been taking you or anything like that? Not for that reason, but I think I think it was like maybe it, it helped open up that crack open that door to looking at stuff that was out there, mm -hmm. which my agent set up. My agent and, and lawyer had always been like, and, and producer Christine Vachon were like, no, no, no. He's a single-minded one at a time, does his own thing, director, don't even, don't even send us the script. And all of a sudden, I was looking at stuff that was out in the world. It's funny, though. I, I, I think of even the films I've written, I think of them as um, not necessarily things I invented, but things that I interpreted from existing stuff in the world, you know? Whether it's literally uh, adapting or interpreting the life of Bob Dylan in, in the way I did in I'm Not There, or looking at the 50s melodrama in a, with a different take as I did in Far From Heaven. These are all coming from really specific sources, movies, history, culture, other writers. In the case of Jean Genet, I, who I looked at on my first feature film, Poison. So I always feel like I'm kind of already reinventing and recombining things right. rather than... Curatorial redefinition. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and yeah. Cur curating is definitely a theme in this new film. Can Talk to me about Carol a little bit. There's a cult of Carol now. I know. There's a real cult of Carol. It's a... I, it, I don't, I'm not sure I saw it coming, but um, there's both like an online, a fervent fan base, um, and obviously is a, recognized as a as a great film when it came out. Uh, how do you look back on that? It's only a couple of years ago now, but I, it, it does feel like it has taken place as like a, one of the most important parts of your career. Yeah, it, it's well, it's so gratifying to see people um, kind of wanting to kind of you know. I, I can relate to movies, as I was just alluding to earlier about my childhood, certain films that would just take over in my mind. And I would need to kind of repeat something about the, exp the emotional experience that I had watching them. And, and the best thing is when one kind of creative experience, one art form or whatever you want to call movies, an art popular culture, form of popular culture, induces a creative reaction in you. And I think fandom is creative. It's like you want to make something with, in kind to kind of replicate it, get back to a feeling, but also sort of show the thing that you love how you feel. But you make it, you know? So it, it triggers creativity on the part of people. And that was absolutely true for me as a fan of movies I would get into. It was true for me as a fan of music. It was the theme of, you know, Velvet, un Velvet Goldmine, uh, my film about the glam rock era. It's really a tribute to the imagination, the dreaming of the fan because I think that 
chapter of music invited it in their in the fan base. So to see any of my films, you know, kind of gravitate into an intense kind of fan culture means that, that they touched a chord that people kind of want to keep replaying in their in their lives and that's that's about all any director could hope to do. A chord that people want to keep replaying is a good theme yeah. for all your work. A couple more to wrap up. One, what are you going to do next and how do you make that decision? I I'm I'm beginning research on a big on a long on a bigger project, a episodic dramatic project. It's too early to talk about it, but I'm very excited about it. But in addition to this new thing, I also just was offered from the Universal Music Group the the opportunity to do a documentary on the Velvet Underground. Amazing. It's a band that, you know, has such profound influence on music, on culture, on some, on me. and um, But it'll be a challenge because there's so little f- traditional kinds of footage of the Velvet Underground doing what most bands do, promoting themselves. And they came out of this weird hybrid avant-garde moment in music and film and, mu- and you know, art culture in the 60s. So there will have to be different recourses to tell that story. So, That's, that sounds it, like a fascinating challenge. Super fun. Really exciting. I look forward to that. Um, what's the last great thing you've seen? Well, I've been watching a lot of Hitchcock's. That's, I, I, it's hard to not just say. It's, for what reason? For this project I'm starting to think okay. about. I'm watching them all again. And it's there's nothing more profound. It's like it's a, it's like uh, it's akin to you know oh yeah so you looked at silent cinema for your movie you know it's like yeah that little thing called silent cinema <laughs> that actually encompasses such an unbelievable breadth of work and artistry and sophistication and beauty and invention. What is your number one for him? I mean I think it still is Vertigo, but it but but that it's hard. There's so many great ones and it's when you go back and look at a lot of them, you discover stuff you forgot about what makes like things like Sabotage is just crazy awesome movie. Dial in for murder, which I sort of had you know, thought was not a major film, is so interesting. And yeah. My wife's favorite film of all time. Yeah. That one. Yeah, Dial Really? Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, that's not expe- That's not typical. I dig that. She's that's, got a grace thing. That's, you know? that, well, that's that's understandable, yeah. of course. But it's 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 fantastic. It's so smart. Todd, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank for you, Sean. Me. I enjoyed it. Take care, man. Thanks again for listening to the Big Picture. Please join me next week, and I'll be talking to the Swedish filmmaker Ruben Ostlund, who's got a great new film coming out called The Square. See you next week.